Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we discuss the secrets of perfect timing. Is there really a science to timing the most important things in life? Is it possible that something as simple as time of day could impact the effectiveness of doctors or other medical experts? Can you align your day to be more effective just by changing the time that you do certain activities? We dig into these questions and much more as we explore the truth about the power of time with Dan Pink. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up and join the email list today. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide, and it's called How to Organize and Remember Everything, which you can get completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide. You got to sign up to find out by joining the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every week called Mindset Monday. Our listeners have been absolutely loving this email. It's short, it's simple, it's filled with articles, videos, stories, things we found interesting or fascinating in the last week. Lastly, you're going to get exclusive content and a chance to shape the show. You can help us vote on guests. You can help us change our intro music and much more. You can even submit your own questions to upcoming guests. You'll also have access to exclusive giveaways that only people who are on the email list get access to and much, much more. 
be sure to sign up and join the email list. There's some incredible stuff, but only subscribers who are on the email list are getting access to this awesome information. I wanna tell you about one of our earlier episodes this month. In our previous episode with Peter Shallard, we explored the gap that exists between learning and doing. Why it is that so many smart, ambitious people invest hours in their growth and development, but fail to see breakaway external results for the time that they've invested. If you sometimes feel overwhelmed by all the things you know you could or should be implementing to level up your life and career, then that episode is going to blow your mind. We explore what science is telling us about the actual execution of concrete individual growth and measurable upward mobility across various dimensions of life. We share the most effective tactic for moving yourself from learning to doing with our special guest, Peter Shallard. That interview a couple weeks ago is one of the most impactful and different interviews that we've done on the show. If you want to finally take action on what you've been procrastinating on, listen to that episode. It'll have a big impact on you. Now for our interview with Dan. Today, we have another legendary guest on the show, Daniel Pink. Dan is the New York Times bestselling author of multiple award-winning books, including his most recent work, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan has been named one of Thinker 50's top 15 business thinkers in the world. His TED Talk on the Science of Motivation is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks of all time, and his work has been featured across the globe. Dan, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show. You know, Austin and I have both been big fans of you and your work for years and years and years. And so, you know, we're really excited to finally have you on here. And I'd love to start out with and kind of dig into, you know, some of the core ideas from from your recent book, When. You know, when you talk about kind of timing, many people sort of bring this idea up. Is, is timing an art or is it a science? You know, I used to think that it was an art, but I'm not convinced it's a science because to write this book and try to figure out how to make better timing decisions, I realized that there is this incredibly vast body of research on timing, uh, everything from What's the effect of time of day on what we do and how we do it? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And I think the challenge in this research and the challenge in this body of science is that it's really not a self-contained body. It is spread over many disciplines. So there's research asking these questions in, you know, in economics and in uh, social psychology, but also in anthropology, in cognitive science, in molecular biology, there's a whole field called chronobiology, it's in anesthesiology and, and epidemiology and endocrinology. And, and those, so the research is splattered across all these disciplines. And, and because the people in these individual disciplines often don't talk very much to one another, I don't think they fully realize that they're asked the same questions. I love how multidisciplinary that kind of approaches. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot about on the show and one of my kind of intellectual heroes is Charlie Munger, who is a huge champion of, of kind of multidisciplinary thinking. And so I think that's a great approach to pursue this sort of question of timing. Yeah, although I have to say, just to be fair, I didn't set out to take a multidisciplinary approach. I set out to find the evidence and the evidence turned out to be in multiple disciplines. So, yeah, so, so generally, like, if, like when we have a choice, when we have a volition. Yeah, I like to see things from different, you know, from multidisciplinary perspective. But that I actually discovered the multidisciplines rather than set out to be explicitly multidisciplinary. 
That's really interesting. I mean, I think it, it comes back to this kind of fundamental premise that to be true, any discipline of you know reality or academia or whatever has to also reflect what every other discipline reflects, right? And so to really figure out what's actually the case, and if we get into kind of the evidence and the science and you know, kind of looking for truth in that sense, I think it all comes back to this idea that every discipline has pieces of the truth. And the only way to really get to the ultimate conclusion in a lot of cases is to kind of merge those types of things. I mean, you know, behavioral and economics is another great example of kind of that cross-disciplinary approach. Sure, sure. And I think it's a really good point. And I actually think that the boundaries between disciplines are not fully arbitrary, but are much more porous than we believe. What makes something, if you think about economics and social psychology, well, they're both ultimately about behavior and decision-making and this endless tug between individuals and the context that they're in. And the fact that we label one economics and one social psychology is in some ways arbitrary. Or if you look at the boundary between social psychology and anthropology, anthropology is less experimental, but the underlying questions are in some ways similar. Again, they have. Di- I don't want to get a lot of hate mail from social scientists, but but you know, but you know, they have. They are different disciplines in some ways. They have different methodologies, but I really think that the borders are far more porous. And the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about even human physiology, the more we realize that the boundaries between quote unquote behavioral science and the quote unquote life sciences are probably more porous than we realize too. Well, I want to come back to this kind of idea of timing, because I think, you know, we could go on about multidisciplinary thinking and and how powerful it is. But, you know, one of the things that that you said in the book that, that really kind of stuck out to me was this idea that we don't take when nearly as seriously as we take what. Sure. I think that's the heart of this book. We tend to be very intentional about certain aspects of our life. We think about our work lives. So what are we going to do? We're intentional about that. We have a to-do list. Who are we going to do it with? Companies have HR departments to figure out who gets to be, who gets to participate. But when it comes to when we do things, we think it doesn't matter. And the evidence shows it matters. It matters a heck of a lot. Even on the unit of a day, our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. Are, they change in ways that can be fairly dramatic. You know, when we do something depends on what it is that we're doing. And yet we tend to think of these questions of when as a second order or third order issue. And it's not. I, I don't think the questions of when are more important than the questions of what or who. But I think they're as important. I think the evidence, the data, the research says that very clearly and loudly. Well, I think it's kind of funny. I mean, the listeners may not hear this in kind of the edited version, but we've both actually already had like at least one thing we had to kind of edit out of this and retake. And we typically record our interviews earlier in the day and and we'll get into kind of the daily architecture and uh, of, you know, how this stuff kind of flows. But I just think it's funny. We're recording this now at 2 p.m. in the afternoon and we are dead in the middle of the trough. And so we're both trying to kind of wake up out of the fog and do this interview. But I'd love to get into that a little bit. So tell me about, you know, what does the science and the data say about how we should structure our kind of daily architecture and how our mood and our performance changes based on the day part? So what we see in general is this, that most of us move through the day in three stages. There's a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Most of us move through the day in that order, peak earlier in the day, trough middle of the day, recovery later in the day. Now, when I say most of us, that's actually a very important caveat. 
some of this is determined by what's known as our chronotype, which is basically our propensity to wake up early and go to sleep early or wake up late and go to sleep late. About 15% of us are very strong morning people. About 20% of us are very strong evening people. And most of us are kind of in the middle. And so 15% of us are larks, 20% of us are owls, two-thirds of us are what I call third birds. And the sequence with, in which you go through these stages depends on your chronotype. And the simplest way to think about it is owls and non-owls, nighttime people and not nighttime people. 80% of us go through the day exactly as I suspected, peak early, trough middle, recovery later. Owls are much more complicated. They might go through the day, recovery, trough, peak, but the main thing is that they hit their peak late in the afternoon and early, sometimes even mid-evening. So why does this matter? So let's think about these three stages. And this goes to the point I made earlier about uh, when we should do something depends on what it is we're actually doing. During the peak, which for most of us is early in the day, that's when we are most vigilant. That's the key word here, vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Vigilance means that you can bat away distractions. You can guard your cerebral gates. You can you know, fight back against intruders. And that makes it the best time for what social psychologists call analytic work. That work that requires heads down, focus, and analysis. Uh, writing a report, analyzing data, something like that. Uh, during the trough, we're, we're actually not good at very much at all. <laughs> it's a very dangerous time of the day. You have a lot of problems in healthcare. You have a rise in auto accidents. A trough is the, as you were saying earlier, Matt, is a less than ideal time of day. And so what we should be doing there is work that doesn't require massive amounts of brain power or creativity or administrative work, answering routine emails, whatever it is, the kind of garbage that all of us have to do day to day on the job. The recovery period is actually really interesting. Again, for most of us, that's late afternoon and early evening. The recovery period is really interesting. At that time of day, we, our mood has recovered. Our mood is higher and we're less vigilant. And that combination can be potent. That makes it a good time for things like brainstorming, iterative work, where we're able to ha- exercise a little bit more mental looseness than mental tightness. And that's pretty much it. That we, What we should be doing is we should be doing our administrative work during the trough. We should be doing our analytic work during the peak. And we should be doing our creative insight work during the recovery. And the problem is that we don't do that. It goes back to this idea that we don't take the when as seriously as we take the what. So I'd love to get into some of the research behind, you know, these conclusions about kind of the day parts and how our mood and behavior changes throughout the day. I know the data behind this is really robust in many cases. So I'd love to kind of hear that. There's so much interesting stuff, Matt. I mean, and what I think is interesting about this again, and maybe it's analogous to the multidisciplinary research we were talking about before is, is how much we see the same patterns across different domains of life. And let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. So let's take education. Uh, there's some brilliant research out of about student test scores in Denmark. This was done by Francesca Gino at Harvard and two Danish researchers. And something very peculiar, sort of natural experiment occurred in Denmark, where students in Denmark take standardized tests as they do here in the United States. But in Denmark, students take these tests on computers. They don't take them on pencil and paper. However, the typical Danish school has more students and computers, so everybody can't take the test at the same time. So they're randomly assigned to take the test at different times of day. And it turns out that taking the test, kids who take the test in the afternoon versus the morning score considerably worse. They score as if they've missed two weeks of school. Now, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. And that if taking a test in the afternoon is the equivalent in your performance of 
missing two full weeks of school. And we see this over and over again in education, where all times of day are not created equal when it comes to student performance. You see this in big time in healthcare, where some very alarming research out of the healthcare sector showing that, for instance, hand washing in hospitals deteriorates considerably in the afternoon. Anesthesia errors are four times more likely at 3 p.m than at 9 a.m. Colonoscopy, doctors performing colonoscopies find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. You see this in corporate performance, where there's a great piece of research out of NYU, New York University, about the tone of corporate conference calls, earnings calls. And earnings calls in the afternoon are more negative, irritable, and combative than earnings calls in the morning, even when you control for the fundamentals of what earnings companies reporting. So in every domain, not every, I mean, basically in multiple, multiple domains, we see some fundamental tenets here about human performance. And one of them is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. Right? That's really important. Our brain power isn't the same throughout the day. It changes. Some of those changes can be fairly dramatic so that the difference between the daily high point and the daily low point is often quite significant. And as I was saying before, you know, when we do something depends on what it is that we're doing. And it goes back to what we were saying before. It's like, so we should be much more intentional about putting the right work at the right time, doing that heads down, lockdown focus work requiring vigilance during our peak period, which for most of us is the morning, for hours is later in the day, doing that more insight driven brainstorming kind of research during the recovery period, which for most of us is late afternoon or early evening. And using the period in the middle of the day, which is a generally pretty bad period, for stuff that isn't a heavy lift, you know, answering routine emails, doing that kind of thing. I find the performance gap to be pretty amazing. I mean, in the Danish kind of schools example. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it was really, really fascinating. It's really incredible. I think the other thing that's interesting about that research is also, I don't want to sound hopeless here, because there's, there, there are remedies for this. So I mean, the, the meta remedy is being much more intentional about doing the right work at the right time. But the other more tactical remedy, you know, in Denmark, and you see it with some of these other studies as well, is that one of the things that helped give those scores a lift back up was giving the kids a break, giving the kids a 20 to 30 minute break beforehand to get a snack and run around. When they had that, the afternoon test scores went up. And, you know, this is another aspect of the science of all of this, which is that the science of breaks is proving to be really powerful, that we we should be taking more breaks. We should be taking certain kinds of breaks. We saw it, you see it in the research on hand washing in hospitals. One of the remedies for getting hand washing in hospitals back up was to give the nurses more breaks, in particular, in that case, social breaks, breaks with other people. And so if we go into the underlying evidence, we can get some clues about what's going on in our midst and how to do things a little bit better. Yeah, I think the kind of theme of recovery and downtime and taking breaks is something we see again and again as, as kind of one of the most common and recurrent themes on the show. You know, we've interviewed a number of people who are kind of top performance experts and that kind of stuff. And, and they talk again and again about how critical rest and recovery is. So that's fascinating. Well, here's what I think about that. It's interesting you say that because my analogy here is that if you look at, again, the science, I, I think the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. That I really do think that in this country, we have a somewhat changed perspective on sleep. That, you know, I find fewer people saying, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or, you know, sleep is for wimps. 
I think that in the last 15 years or so, we, the science of sleep has deepened. It's hit some critical level of public consciousness. And so at least somewhat less, people are not celebrating as much sleep deprivation and pulling all-nighters because we know it hurts performance. It doesn't help performance. That you shouldn't be bragging about that. You should be ashamed of that. I mean, nobody would brag about saying, oh, my God, I came into the office yesterday and I was totally drunk. You know, and lack of sleep has that kind of effect. And I think we're changing on that, on our approach to sleep. And, and I think the same thing is happening with breaks. And again, I don't have clean hands here because I'm someone who never took breaks. And my attitude toward breaks was that breaks are for wimps, breaks are a sign of weakness, breaks are a concession, that amateurs take breaks, but professionals don't. And as you've discovered on your show, it's the exact opposite. Professionals take breaks, it's the amateurs who don't take breaks. But every once in a while, a body of research, a body of science gets deep enough that it has some substance, but for whatever collection of forces, it ends up hitting public consciousness and changing the way we approach our lot. I think that is happening now with sleep. And I think that's on the brink of happening with breaks. That's a really fascinating insight. And I think it, it's a great way to kind of look at that because sleep definitely has become more like people have started to realize how critical it is. And, and you know, we had an interview a couple months ago with Dr. Matthew Walker, who's one of the top sleep experts. Uh, yeah, I, I, and, I recommend that book all the time. I, um, I'm spacing out on the name of it, but it's the, the why we sleep, something like that. But it's the best book on sleep science around. Yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating dude. And we'll throw that in the show notes so listeners can dig into that. But it's a great way to kind of conceive of that because you're right. I think there is, there's still a, a huge stigma around taking breaks. You know, I mean, I can't imagine it going into a random Fortune 500 company's office and seeing somebody napping at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Yeah, and maybe they should be. Maybe they'd be performing better. And it is a, it is a, a weirdly American thing that is, that, you know, somehow Americans, no matter where they come from, have absorbed some of this puritanical mindset where breaks are a sign of, you know, not only like physical and intellectual laziness, but they're a sign of moral weakness, you know, and, and that's just the wrong way to think about it. And, I, and as I said, I'm a sinner in all of this because I, that's what I used to think. Yeah, I mean, I think I had the same belief and even years ago, the same kind of conception about sleep and how it wasn't important and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, the more you look at whether it's the science and the data, people like Dr. Matthew Walker or even the world's top performance experts, sleep, rest, recovery, it, it's so vital. Absolutely. Well, you have, you know, many NBA teams now have sleep consultants where they're monitoring their players' sleep, where they're actually taking away some of the autonomy players have over the temperature in their rooms when they sleep. And so, you know, sleep is a part of our performance, just as breaks are part of our performance. And again, I, you know, I used to think that these things were deviations from performance. They were concessions that you had to make. But I actually think the better way to look at it is that breaks are part of performance itself. Yeah, I think that's a great way to kind of contextualize it. So I want to come back and, and circle back to this idea of, of chronotypes and the three kind of different ways that, you know, people kind of live in the world and, and how they kind of interact with different day cycles. Could you tell me again and kind of share what were the three different types? Sure. So you know, we have to think of it as a spectrum about the three broad categories are you can think of as morning people, evening people and intermediate people or to put some feathers on it larks, owls, and what I call third birds. And as I said, the distribution is about 15% of us are larks, 20% of us are 
owls and about two thirds of us are third birds in the middle. And what that does is all, all that is, is it's a way of categorizing your propensity. Are you more likely to, are you the kind of person who wakes up early and goes to sleep early? Or are you the kind of person who wakes up late and goes to sleep late? Or are you somewhere in the middle? And that has a, an effect on how we navigate the day, that the patterns of the day, the hidden pattern of the day is somewhat different for these. It's, it's different for every individual. There's, there's individual variation, but in this broader group, there's variation in that larks are peak trough recovery. Most third birds are peak trough recovery. Owls are much, 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 much more complicated. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. It's really interesting to see. I mean, I think you, you know, hear and kind of experience colloquially people saying, oh, I'm a night owl, et cetera, et cetera. But there's actually a ton of science that kind of supports that conclusion. Oh, my God. There's a whole field called chronobiology that has devoted a huge amount of resources to this. 
And, you know, it's relatively easy to figure out your chronotype. There is a, something called a Munich chronotype questionnaire with the MCTQ, which you can, one can take online. You can also do it in a back-of-the-envelope way by figuring out your midpoint of sleep on days when you don't have to get up to an alarm clock. That's really interesting. So basically, when you say midpoint of sleep, just take the time. Yeah, that well, you- let's do it for you, Matt. So let's think about it was important here to do is think about what chronobiologists call us a free day. A free day is a day you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. But you're, you're also not, you know, massively sleep deprived. So you're sleeping and you're just you can wake up when you want and you go to sleep when you want. So for you, when would that be when if you could on a free day, you don't have to wake up to an alarm clock, but you're not massively sleep deprived. So you're not trying to catch up. When would you typically go to sleep? What at what time? Probably 10 p.m. And then what time would you typically wake up? Probably between six and seven. OK, so let's call it. I mean, just call it six. All right. So you wake up at six. What we're trying to do here is figure out your midpoint of sleep. So your midpoint of sleep, if you went to sleep at 10 and woke up at 6, your midpoint of sleep would be 2 a.m. Okay, so you're a lark, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely am. So if your midpoint of sleep is 3.30 a.m. or earlier, you're probably a lark. If it's 5.30 a.m. or later, you're probably an owl. And if it's between 3.30 and 5.30, you're a third bird. And so that's a fairly larky profile right there. So you're probably in the 15% of people who are who are larks. So, so you're going to go through the day, probably peak drop recovery. And you're probably, your peak is probably going to begin earlier and end earlier than, than my peak. I'm not an owl by any means. I'm, I'm larky, but not a full fledged lark like you. And so for you, someone like you, uh, you know, those, that start of the morning, relatively early in the morning is going to be when you're most vigilant. And so any work you have that requires vigilance is best done during that stretch of time. You know, it's funny, I've kind of before even discovering when I think I'd kind of stumbled into this daily architecture of having my first couple hours of the day be all around kind of that proactive, you know, most important tasks, kind of the important but not urgent kind of activities. Absolutely. And that's hard to do. Most of us don't do that. Most of us, you know, an Eisenhower's famous two by two matrix of important and urgent. Most of us neglect the important for the urgent. And it takes some discipline and good set of choice architecture, you know, good pattern of choice architecture to, to, to get around that. So there's a couple kind of variables that I'm curious if you if you looked at or stumbled upon in your research. One of them is fasting. And have you seen or did you uncover anything about how fasting either positively or negatively kind of impacts uh, energy levels throughout the day? I did not look at that. I found a lot of the research on nutrition and whatnot somewhat internally contradictory, and I didn't feel comfortable going full throttle. Yeah, it's a minefield. Yeah, exactly. I didn't feel comfortable in that. That said, I mean, there is research out there on, certainly there's a lot of research showing that calorie restriction, sometimes severe calorie restriction can aid in longevity. There is, uh, there's some research now and some practice out there on, on intermittent fasting, there is a very interesting line of research, again, it's not in humans yet, called TRF, time-restricted feeding, which suggests that the key to weight control might not be what you actually eat, but when you eat it. And that if you can restrict your eating to a certain 12-hour period, like you never eat before 7 a.m. and after 7 p.m., that that might be helpful for weight loss. So... You know, there are these more popular books with these various kinds. I have no idea how scientifically valid they are with these, you know, where you fast for two days and then eat what you want for five days. So you, this intermittent fasting, you know, might have an effect of rebooting or streamlining our metabolism. Yeah. And I mean, I've, 
trying to step aside from the whole weight loss and, and that kind of question, because I know that can be a, a disaster. I was more curious specifically about kind of energy levels, but it sounds like you didn't necessarily go down that rabbit hole. No, I didn't. I, I found the nutrition work a thicket. I really did. Yeah, I think it, it is a thicket. And I, and I didn't and I didn't know how much I didn't know how much guidance I could give readers based on the thicket. Like, you know, maybe that bushwhacking through that thicket. I wasn't sure I was going to get it right. And I wasn't sure whether the people who were doing the research actually fully knew because there are a lot of contradictions from study to study. And I also feel like, and this is science too, you know, that, that, oh, you know, what we thought two years ago about this is not right. Oh, what we thought two years before that, that's not right either. And so whatever it is we're thinking about today could be superseded by whatever it is that we discover two or three years hence. So this is kind of a related sort of just tidbit of a question, but did you find any research or look at all on the impacts of caffeine and kind of that peak trough or, or daily energy levels? There's some. So for instance, if you think, I mean, for, for instance, there's a very, I think it's a pretty strong argument for against having a cup of coffee as soon as you wake up. And the research, uh, coffee has a caffeine delivery mechanism. When we wake up, we start producing cortisol. It's a stress hormone. And that's what, one of the things that helps us wake up. We produce it naturally. It's part of what is waking up. And it turns out that caffeine can interfere with the production of cortisol. So if you take, if you ingest caffeine immediately, if you ingest caffeine while you're producing cortisol, it can actually slow the production, arrest the stymie, the production of cortisol. So what you're better off doing is waiting an hour or so before introducing caffeine in the morning, because I mean, at that point, your caffeine level, that your cortisol levels will have begun declining and you can then use the caffeine to bring up your levels of alertness. Uh, there's also some interesting research on napping and coffee drinking. There's a very strong argument in the science for taking very short naps. There's an even stronger argument for having a cup of coffee before taking a very short nap because it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into your bloodstream. So if you drink a cup of coffee and then lie down and you know try to get a 10 or 12 minute nap, uh, when you're waking up, you know you set your alarm for 25 minutes, uh, you know it takes you five, 10 minutes to fall asleep. You can nap for 12 or 13 minutes. When you're waking up, you are able to get the restorative benefits of the nap without the groggy boggy feeling and the added bonus of a big dose of caffeine kicking in at that exact moment. So this might be, I mean, this is obviously kind of a sample of one, but I, I found that if I forego caffeine completely, my energy level, let's say it's, it sort of stays at like a six out of 10 throughout the day. And if I have it in the morning, my energy is like an eight or nine in the morning, but then I think it, it almost amplifies the kind of trough and the crash in the afternoon. Sure. I mean, that, that sounds plausible. I mean, I don't know the physiology well enough to draw to assert big, big claims about that, but that seems uh, very plausible to me. I remember human beings got by fine without caffeine for a long time. So let's zoom out of this sort of nutritional rabbit hole and even further out of, of kind of the daily architecture component. And, and I want to get to the kind of idea of timing in a more macro sense in terms of life events and, and how, you know, those it kind of it impacts our lives in a broader sense. Can you talk a little bit about some of the conclusions that you found in doing the work for the book? Sure. I mean, what we have here is that our lives are, in many ways, a series of episodes. Uh, they're, they're not a clear linear progression in many cases. And episodes have beginnings, middles, and ends. And beginnings, middles, and ends each exert different effects on our behavior. And so there's a whole body of research on how do beginnings affect us. There's a, a fascinating body of research on how midpoints affect us. Sometimes midpoints bring us down. 
Other times they fire us up. There's some great stuff on endings. How do endings shape our memory? How do endings shape our mood? How do endings change our behavior? And this stuff is as important as the day-to-day effects of you know, biology and physiology and psychology on how we perform. Let's go deeper into that. So let's start with beginnings. Talk about how beginnings kind of, you know, how do they shape us and, and what are kind of the implications of, of being in the beginning phase of something? Well, it, you know, it's, it's going to depend from domain to domain sometimes. So for instance, you look at some of the research in economics, particularly from Lisa Kahn at Yale, showing that the initial labor market conditions when you graduate, basically, the, I don't want to fancy it up. There's some great research, for instance, from Lisa Kahn at Yale who found that the unemployment rate when you graduate from college can predict what your wages are going to be 20 years later. So that somebody who graduated from college in a recession 20 years later is going to probably earn, you know, similarly situated person will learn, earn less than someone who graduated in a boom time. So what the labor market is like when you first enter it has a big effect on our wages literally two decades later, which is a little bit alarming. And there's also some great research from Katie Milkman at Penn, Jason Reese at Penn, Heng Chen Dai was at Penn, now is at, I think, UCLA, about the importance of picking the right date to start something. So certain dates operate as what they call triggering a fresh start effect, where we do this weird form of mental accounting on certain days where we banish our bad old selves to the past and open up a fresh ledger on our new selves. And so what they found is people are more likely to start a diet or start a new exercise regimen or those kinds of you know, positive behavioral changes. They're more likely to start them on a Monday rather than on a Thursday, on the first of the month rather than on the 13th of the month, you know, on the day after their birthday rather than the day before their birthday. I can definitely see that. And so you know, with the kind of awareness of that knowledge, how do you think we should sort of think about shaping or changing the way we interact with the beginnings in our lives? Well, I mean, I think we just, again, I think it's a question of attentionality. That is, so for instance, you and I happen to be talking on a Thursday that is 31st of the month. That's a really bad day to start something in general, okay? Because a Thursday has, is not a fresh start date. The 31st is not a fresh start date. And what we also know is that the the first of the month is actually a pretty good fresh start date. So you're starting on the day before the first of the month. So, so if I were planning some kind of behavior change of my own, today would not be the ideal day to start it. And again, it's just simply being, going back to your earlier question, Matt, it's like we don't take the when as seriously as we take the what. So we know what we should do. Hey, I need to stop eating meat or, hey, I need to exercise more. But when we start doing that can play a role in how long we sustain the behavior. That totally makes sense. And I mean, I think it, you know, the simplest way that I could kind of conceive of that is even just the birthday example is really simple, right? It's, if it's about to be your birthday, you're, you want to go out and, you know, have a nice dinner and eat some cake and, and kind of let loose. You're definitely not going to be starting a diet or kind of radically changing your life right before that happens. No, but the day after your birthday is a very important fresh start date for people. So what about middles? What did you find about middles and, and how they kind of function in our lives? Well, as I said, midpoints do two things. Sometimes they bring us up, sometimes they bring us down. And so you look at the research on well-being over the course of a lifetime, and it turns out that it's shaped like a U where we're relatively happy in our 20s and 30s, begin to decline in our 40s, reach a bottom in our 50s, and then start to tick back up in our 60s, 70s, and if we make it 80s and 90s. And then you also see other kinds of patterns of behavior in how well people comply with rules and 
how diligent they are, where at the beginning they're very diligent, at the end they're very diligent, but their diligence fades a little bit in the middle. On the other hand, there's also research on the other side of that showing that teams, when they do team projects, they really don't begin their work in earnest until the middle of the project. So if a team has 35 days to finish a project, they'll likely get started in earnest on day 18. During that first 17 days, they won't do that much. And it's only when they hit that temporal midpoint where they throw off old patterns and re-engage and really, really, and really get going. It's also some research from the NBA showing that for NBA teams, basketball teams, that, you know, and again, basketball is something where there is an explicit midpoint. Most midpoints are invisible to us. Basketball has a very visible midpoint. It's called halftime. A horn goes off. We announce it. These researchers found that teams ahead by at halftime are more likely to win the game, with one exception. Teams that are trailing by one point are more likely to win than teams that are ahead by one point. That being down by one at halftime is equivalent to being up by two in your win probability. And so sometimes midpoints are uh, create a slump. Sometimes they create a spark. And simply being aware of all that allows you to be volitional enough about it to do something about it. So in essence, midpoints are kind of these these critical inflection points that can have a tremendous shift in one direction or another. Absolutely. And they're usually invisible to us. That's the problem. And so if we make them visible, we can be, again, my word of the moment, intentional about what we do about it. That's a great point. It's always hardest to kind of figure out when you're in the middle, right? The beginning's usually pretty clear. The ending's pretty clear. Right. But uh, the middle is the challenging part. Right. I mean, certain projects will have a certain duration and there'll be a deadline or something like that. And then you can work backward. But yeah, and that kind of ambiguity makes it tough sledding sometimes. And coming to this idea of sort of endings and the, and the importance of endings, I know you, you share a really funny example of, of when people typically run a marathon. Sure. That's the research from Adam Alter and Hal Hirschfield showing that people are disproportionately likely to run their first marathon in years that end in a nine. So 29, 39, 49, 59. 49-year-olds are, for instance, three times more likely to run a first marathon than 50-year-olds because this, this is another effect of endings. When the end of something becomes salient, we kick a little bit harder. That's fascinating. And again, I think it, it kind of, it makes sense intuitively, but it's really interesting to see when the data kind of backs that conclusion up. Oh, yeah. So, I, you know, I think this is a really interesting kind of conception that in many cases, we don't, prioritize or sort of deprioritize the timing of things in our lives. But in reality, that's, you know, just as important as many other factors. Yeah, absolutely right. So, so for listeners who want to kind of take this concept of timing and, and the science of timing and, and apply it in some way concretely, what would kind of be a piece of homework that you would give to them in terms of kind of an action step they could implement in their lives to start being more intentional, as you said, about the timing of things around us, both in our days and in the broader story of our lives? Well, there are all kinds of things. I mean, one, you know, there are all kinds of things you can do. I, I think one of the simplest ones is to make a break list. And I try to do this every day when, that I'm in my office, which is I will write down a certain time of day, let's say like one o'clock in the afternoon when I will take a break and I will put it into my list of things to do that day at that particular time. So if I had a meeting or a phone call at a particular time or of the day, I would never miss that. And so I will go out and, you know, every afternoon 
take, I'm not, I'm not going crazy here, you know, at least one 10 or 15 minute walk around my neighborhood. And what we know about the design principles of breaks, that breaks are, that something is better than nothing. So even a short break is better than no break at all. That moving is better than stationary. So you're better off being in motion rather than just being plopped on the couch. We know that social is better than solo. So breaks with another person are more restorative. And we know that the best breaks are fully detached. That is, you leave your phone at home, you leave your phone behind, and you don't talk about work if you're going out with somebody else. And so scheduling one break every day to do something like go walk around outside with somebody you like talking about something other than work can be really, really powerful. And then some of it also, I mean, the, the, among the other, I mean, there's so many in this book, there's so many huge, there's just bursting with takeaways, some of which are going to depend on a particular person's experience or their perspective. But one of the things that I think is useful for everybody is trying to track your daily behavior. So, you know, you can set your phone alarm to ring every 15, not every 15, every 45 minutes or every hour and 15 minutes or something like that. And, you know, prompt two questions for you. How am I feeling right now on a scale of one to 10? Uh, how am I working right now on a scale of one to 10? And if you chart that very simple set of uh, self-reports, if you chart that over time, it's not bad. So what would be a good kind of sample size uh, to, to chart those? You know, a week, two weeks? I would try it for a week. Yeah, I would try it for a week. And again, I think part of the, there's also one of the things that we should get better at is observing our own behavior and actually conducting small experiments. Like we don't know the answers to a lot of stuff. This is one reason why in the digital world they, ha- they do so much A-B testing. You know, Facebook knows whether I'm more likely to, to click a royal blue button or a an aquamarine colored button. And, you know, so they serve their customers both and see which one is more popular. I think there's a lot of room to do A-B testing in ourselves, A-B testing our organization. So we should go in and treat our, a lot of our performance out. And this is at the heart of your show, Matt. We should, we should treat our, a lot of our performance as, as if we're scientists. Okay. What do scientists do? They have a hypothesis and they test the hypothesis. And so I have a hypothesis that I'm going to do better doing my insight work starting at 5 p.m and setting out, or maybe even later, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. to do my insight work. Okay, that's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is going to work. Let's test the hypothesis. So go do that for a, for a month or, you know, a week or two weeks or a month. And then I see how it goes. And if the hypothesis is right, great, I've learned something. If the hypothesis is wrong, great, I've learned something. So I think there's two kind of funny anecdotes about that. One is when you started talking about breaks and kind of making a break list, the first thing you said about it was, I'm not going crazy here taking, you know, taking all kinds of breaks. And I think it just underscores what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, which is this idea that there's kind of this social stigma around taking breaks. It's okay if you want to take a break, Dan. Well, we're going to allow you to take one. But, but you know, I, I think the second piece, I love this idea of, of observing your own behavior and kind of conducting small experiments. I mean, you know, about a week ago, I started, I was asking you, I was really curious about this kind of caffeine and how it impacts your people's energy levels to see if you'd seen any science behind it. But I started this experiment about a week ago where I'm just kind of alternating days where I have caffeine and days where I don't and seeing what my energy levels look like throughout the day and kind of trying to track that. Okay, is there a, sort of a repeatable pattern here, kind of peaks and troughs, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So for listeners who want to dig in more, who want to find you and your work, where's the best place to find that online? They can go to www.danpink.com, www.danpink.com. I got all kinds of groovy stuff there. I got videos, I've got uh, PDFs of discussion guides for books. I got information on all the books. I've got other freebies and things like that. I do an email newsletter that's free. 
I do something that I call a, a pink cast, which are these uh, regular short videos with tools and tips. So and everything, everything there is free. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of these insights and, and practical strategies. You know, as I said, we've been big fans of you and your work for a long time. So it's great to have you on here to kind of share some insights with the listeners. It's been a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Powerful as Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to 1 gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.